I hold in my hands my very first Bible. It was given to me in 1966, which tells you that I'm a very old man, <laughs> when I was six years old. And even though it's still it's missing a few pages, and if I open it up, some of them would fall out, it's a very special thing for me, because it was given to me by my grandparents. Um, and there's an inscription on the back of it. And I have a vivid memory of coming uh, when I was uh, six years old, just starting to learn how to read. I remember you know, certain things sort of stick in your mind. There's a couple of things that stick in my mind about this. I remember taking it to my dad, who was sitting at the dining room, t- the kitchen table, and giving it, it to him to sign. I just remember giving it to him to sign. And he wrote in it, to Stephen from Grandma and Grandpa, October 21, 1960. And on the left-hand corner, it says, Stephen Gilbertson, 4409 North 9th Avenue, Phoenix, Arizona. Yes, I'm a native of Arizona, one of the few this old who were born here. Um, and then I remember taking that Bible then, the second memory, is taking and laying prone on the living room floor as if there were a television in front of me, but at that point, I'm quite sure we did not have a television, and I'm old enough to have lived in a home without television, though they were, of course, invented by then, and reading out of it. And there's nothing that's sort of interesting about this, is that I gave it to my dad upside down. So you'll see, in order to read it, I have to turn it backwards. So the inscriptions actually in the back of the Bible, which I was always kind of embarrassed about it, um, uh, later, once I really learned how to read well. And on the inside, then, of course, I have written my name, and then crossed out of it is my brother's name, Jeff, who claimed it after a while. And then crossed out over that again is my sister's name, Brenda, until later I recovered my Bible. I'm the oldest of four children. And uh, so, this is a relic, but it's a meaningful relic to me because it is the first Bible that I ever had. And now that my eyes are getting older, there's another thing that I appreciate about it. Can you see that it's written rather large print? Yeah, it's a New Testament. I remember, as I said, laying down on the floor and just being so proud that I had been learning how to read. And it was coming somewhat easily to me, and I felt proud of that and proud of this Bible that my grandma and grandpa had given to me. And I opened it up, and because I was raised in the church and had some familiar with Scripture already, I thought, what am I going to read? And I opened it up to the Gospel of John, to the first chapter, and I began to read these words, which is our text here at the beginning as we begin this study, Meeting Jesus. I'm not sure that I read all 18 of these words, but I know I read the first 13 or 14. But listen as I read these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, but the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. I've just read for you the prologue of the Gospel of John. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel of John is a wonderful book. It has always been my favorite gospel. There's four gospels that talk about Jesus, and perhaps because of it having this early memory for me, uh, that's why it's so significant to me. I don't know if you've read the gospels, but I hope you will. In fact, um, it would take you an hour and 42 minutes to read the gospel of John this week out loud. I can prove it to you because I have a recording of it, of the gospel of John, not read by me, read by a professional, and they read, of course, very slow, an hour and 42 minutes, about the length of watching a movie, right? About the length of watching TV or watching the news three times this week. Probably more time than you spend on the road this week. I want to invite you and ask you to take some time over the course of these next few weeks to read this Gospel of John. It's a beautiful and simple and poignant book. When I was in uh, junior high school, I was a part of a Bible memory reading program, and we were, called, we were required to memorize about 12 verses a week for about 12 weeks, a lot of verses. And I remember in particular one year when I did that, when all the verse readings that we had to do were out of the Gospel of John. Oh, I'm so grateful. Steve and I were talking earlier about how the fact that we don't teach learning by rote anymore, and um, perhaps that's good, but I, in some ways I think the drills do us well, don't they? They put things into our brains that we can recall later. And so I'm thankful that I memorized. In fact, this text I just read for you today, I had to memorize when I was young, and I could not have quoted it probably perfectly, but I could have come pretty close in doing that. The Gospel of John is a great book. It's a favorite book for many people. It's at once very simple and very profound. It's a beautiful story. Kind Kind of like the Chronicles of Narnia is, or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a child can enjoy this story. It's just a, a great little adventure story. 
But an adult can watch that story and see deeper meanings and, and larger lessons in that. The Gospel of John is like that. In fact, when I was in graduate school, after we had studied Greek for a semester, we began to open the Bible for ourselves to read it out of the Greek language. And the first book that we went to was the letter of John called 1 John and 2 John. It's the simplest Greek in all of the New Testament. And then we went to this gospel, the gospel of John. It's a very simple, easy-to-understand book. It contains many favorite stories found only in this gospel. It's got this story of when Jesus turns water into wine, all right? Remember that story? That's in the Gospel of John. It's got this story of when Jesus talks to Nicodemus about being born again. That's found in this Gospel. It's got this story of when Jesus meets a woman by the well in a, in a pl place called Samaria and asks her for a drink and then offers her living water. That's in this Gospel. It's got the story of a woman who's caught in the very act of adultery and brought before him as if they were going to condemn her right in, in their presence. That's in this gospel. It's got the story of when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That's in this gospel. If you were to ask most people what's the shortest verse in the Bible, a lot of people would know that it's the words, Jesus wept. That's in this gospel. If you were to ask what's the most favorite or famous verse in the whole Bible, most people would say, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's in this gospel. It's a simple, beautiful gospel, something that is easy to enjoy, but it's also very profound. Lots has been written, lots of things have been written about this gospel it's very profound in its theology, its expression of who Jesus is. It's very different from the other three Gospels. Um, it's also very profound in its organization. It's got some things in it that scholars love to talk about, like many, uh, all of Jesus' miracles are called signs, not miracles. They're called signs, and there are seven signs in the Gospel of John. Also, there are seven, uh, seven, seven, uh, seven signs. Then there's also seven times when the, John speaks in the words, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection of the dead. A lot of scholars like to talk about these things and, and think about these. There is just a wonderful storytelling that happens in the Gospel of John. Um, if you read through it, and I hope you will, I'm trying to get you to just read through it. Not once, but like every week. Why not? It's 21 chapters, three chapters a day. You could have it read. When people ask me where to start in the Bible, I invariably say start in the Gospel of John. And one of the reasons I say that is because John is filled with personal conversations. In the Gospel of John, we have Jesus interacting personally with people. You know, he talks personally to his mother at the wedding in the Cana of Galilee. He talks personally to a religious leader named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He speaks one-on-one -on -one with a woman by a well in Samaria. He talks to a man sitting by a pool oh, who's been lame for 38 years. One-on-one -on -one he speaks to them. See, when Jesus comes, he doesn't come simply as a concept to be studied, but as a person to be responded to. So the Gospel of John is a wonderful book, and uh, these first 18 verses of the prologue are powerful and poignant. I'm tempted to really dig into this, 
but I'm just not going to do it today because uh, it would be beyond what we have time to do exactly. But I would like for you to think of these verses around three questions that we're going to take a look at today. The three questions are, who is Jesus? Why was Jesus here? And how do I respond to Jesus? We're going to take a look at these three questions because I'm trying to approach this book like a children's storybook to see what's it really teaching me about Jesus. Let's look at the first four verses together and answer the first question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Listen to these words. In the beginning was the word. Now, I quoted out of the King James Version. That's how I memorized it. I read it for you out of that version too. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was nothing made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth, or could not overcome it, comprehendeth it not. The first thing that this text teaches us about Jesus is that Jesus is fully divine. Jesus is distinctively divine. This is one of the most important things to realize about the Christian message. Christians look at Jesus as having been absolutely unique, a one-of-a-kind person in all of history. That he lived on this earth is pretty well indisputable. But who he was is a, a matter of endless dispute. Most everybody looks at Jesus as an important person. In fact, alone among all of religious faiths, it seems, Jesus is respected among them all. Jews respect Jesus. Muslims respect Jesus. In fact, as a Muslim, you're required to believe that Jesus was a prophet of God. It's true that you believe that, Moses, that Muhammad was the greatest prophet of God, but you believe that Jesus and Moses were both prophets of God. Buddhists respect Jesus. Hindus respect Jesus. Even atheists respect Jesus. No one that doesn't respect Jesus so far as uh, they may not respect Jesus' followers. They may not respect Jesus' church but most everybody respects Jesus. But what Christians believe about Jesus is that Jesus was distinctively divine. See it in this text here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, if you pick up your Gospel of Mark and read it, you will see that Mark begins with the prophets. It ties Jesus back to the prophet Isaiah and another prophet whose name escapes me at this time. We read Jesus as a fulfillment of prophets. If you pick up and look in your Gospel of Matthew, you see that Matthew takes Jesus back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. He tells a genealogy which begins with Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then you know, all the other, uh, and then Judah, and then all the others down through. And Matthew does a, 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 a very masterful ta- job of talking about Jesus as if he is, there are 14 generations three times from Adam 
to Jesus, making Jesus the 50th generation or the year of Jubilee, tying them back to, um, to uh, uh, the Jewish people, um, uh, Abraham. Luke, however, goes further back as well. And Luke ties the Jesus story all the way back to Adam. His geology, genealogy goes beyond Abraham and all the way back to Adam. But when you pick up the Gospel of John, we see it doesn't just go back to the prophets. It doesn't just go back to the beginning of the Jewish nation. It doesn't even just go back to the beginning of humanity. It goes back when? To the beginning of time. In the beginning. In fact, very consciously, what John the evangelist is doing is he's calling into mind the first chapter of Genesis, which we read at the beginning. Do you remember that text? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God brooded over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. If you were to take that passage and put it next to John 1, 1 to 3, you'd see some very obvious similarities. First of all, the obvious, in the beginning, John is trying to say that Jesus wasn't just the greatest uh, Jew that ever lived. He's not just the greatest human that ever lived, that he is, in fact, God in the flesh. And in the same way that God said, let there be light, Jesus is called the Word, which is something that you what? You say. And in the same way that God, that darkness was scattered and light came into being when God said, let there be light, John is saying to us that the darkness cannot overcome the light that he brings light. In fact, this scripture teaches us that Jesus is himself the agent of creation. Jesus is fundamentally unique in all of history. He is distinctly divine. Now, I know that this can be controversial, and sometimes we're ashamed about it, but it's just the truth. Jesus was unique in all of history, but he wasn't just divine. Secondly, it teaches us that Jesus is radically human. Verse 14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus wasn't simply some divine being who pretended to be human in this world, who acted as if acted human but really was only divine. No, he was God embodied in human flesh. That's why I called this message embodied God. See, not only did John want to show that Jesus was divine, but John was also concerned about some teachings which were going around uh, early on in his day and became really a problem in the second century of the New Testament church, which was that some people thought that God was so, Jesus was so divine that he only appeared to be human. He only pretended to be human. Or that maybe he was human for the period of his baptism until the time of his death, but that when he died, he went to be with God and his body never died. But John is trying to say, no, this is an embodied Jesus. And one of the things that you'll see in John is he's very earthy. He eats with his disciples. He speaks to his disciples. He, uh, uh, he, uh, he's very close to his disciples. He became flesh. So we have in Jesus not simply uh, 
a divine being, but a human being. He was radically human and distinctively divine. That's what John is trying to set up in this, the prologue. Now, perhaps you're not familiar with what a prologue is, but uh, if you read a lot of books, you know that often in the beginning of the book, the author will say what he's going to tell you. Or if you go to a, a, a play, often a, a play will begin, or a, will begin with an overture. Have you ever heard of the William Tell Overture? Or the 1812 Overture? These are overtures that are very famous, and they do, they try to set the themes. And so in this text, John is trying to set the themes for what he's going to talk about. So the first question is, who is Jesus Christ? And as we take a look at this Scripture together, we'll continually be brought back to this question, who is Jesus Christ? And the second question is, why did Jesus come? Why was Jesus here? The text gives to us two reasons why, uh, why Jesus came here. The first is that Jesus came to reveal God to us. Jesus came to reveal God to us. Look what it says in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father. He has made Him known. Jesus comes to reveal God to us. You know, one of the realities is that uh, almost everybody believes in God. You don't have a problem getting people to say, I believe in God. The question is not, do you believe in God, but which God do you believe in? What is your God like? Who is that God? Is He simply a cosmic spirit which is ever-present in the universe? Is He the spirit that resides within human beings or animals or perhaps inanimate things? Is that who your God is? Who is your God? For Christians, their God is Jesus. We see Jesus That's who God is for us. He's the one who is the physical representation of God. He is God with skin on. I remember when my daughter was very small, about three years old, and uh, we lived in Indiana at the time, and they have some rather frightening storms sometimes that would go on, and uh, she was in the the bed uh, sleeping. In fact, she was probably still in the crib at this point. Uh, we kept our kids in cribs as long as possible till they, you know, because it's kind of nice, you know. Um, but in any case, she, or she may have been in a small bed by now, but she was frightened by the lightning and the sound of all of that, and she gets that from her mother. I remember, so it was so funny to me one time. She loves storms, but uh, when, we were upstairs in this old, old farmhouse over 100 years ago, and, uh, and the, th- the lightning and the thunder was really loud. And Donna loves that stuff. She just loves it. But then it got to be just too much. And wouldn't you know it, she starts, and we already have a child. She starts to go downstairs and say, I'm going to sleep on the ground, <laughs> on the floor level, where I'll feel safer. I said, Donna, your baby's upstairs. Aren't you going to, you know, she was afraid. Anyway, my daughter was kind of afraid. And, uh, and, and I remember going in there to try to comfort her and encourage her during the middle of one of these storms. And I said something stupid like, oh, you know, Jesus is with you, right? <laughs> you know, that's not stupid. But it's true, right? Don't worry, because I was not going to stay with her all night. You know, I'm not that caring of a person, you know. Uh, yeah, and I said, don't worry, Cayenne. Jesus is with you. But she said to me something I've never forgotten. She said, but I can't see him. I can still remember that in that little tiny three-year-old voice. But I can't see him, you know. And I thought, well, that's right, you can't see him, but he's here. Well, 
That's what Jesus was for us. We know about God as the creator of the universe. Everybody knows something about that. But Jesus is God with skin on, God with us. So we want to know what God is like. Look at Jesus. See him suffering on behalf of those who suffer. That's what God is like. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. See him angry with self-righteous people who think they've got it all figured out. That's what God is like. You know what God is like? Look at Jesus. See him taking care of the sick and the poor and the hurting and the suffering and those in jail and caring for the least of these. That's what God is like. Jesus came to reveal God to us. We know what God is like because of Jesus. Um, yeah. All right. Secondly, Jesus came not just to reveal God to us, but also to reveal grace to us. To reveal grace to us. Look what it says in verse 14 through 16. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 16, for from His fullness have we all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus didn't just come to reveal God to us. Jesus came to reveal grace to us. In fact, in many ways, the whole human story is God's great experiment of showing on the greatest canvas of all, His grace. Grace comes through Jesus. What does that mean? Well, grace means those things that God has given to us which we could never earn and did not deserve. The morning sunrise, a gift of God's grace. Your health and natural abilities, a gift of God's grace. Your family, a gift of God's grace. The beauty of our world, a gift of God's grace. All are gifts of God's grace. We did nothing to earn them or to deserve them. They're free gifts of God's grace. These are evident, but God's grace is especially revealed through the coming of Jesus. You see, we are told about it here in this, in this story when it says, Moses gave the law, but Jesus gave us grace and truth. What does that mean? Very simply, the, the law told people what they had to do to be acceptable to God, but Jesus t brings a whole new era. Jesus tells us what God has done to make us acceptable to God, what God has done for us. You see, law tells you what you've got to do. Grace tells you what Jesus has done. The difference between understanding the truth of Christianity and simple religiosity is religiosity, religiosity asks the question, what do I have to do to gain God's favor? Grace says, and true Christianity says, I accept what God has done for me to show me His favor. It's the difference between the word do and the word done. Well, what is it that God has done for us? Well, later on in this text, we see that John, the evangelist, will, uh, the, uh, the baptizer, looks at Jesus and calls Him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus became a sacrifice of grace to take away our sin. It's as if there is a huge chasm that exists between humanity and God. It's a chasm that exists because humanity has turned their back on God. We try to reach back across it, but we can't 
because of our sinfulness and our selfishness. But God himself has reached across it through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to bridge the gap, the gap of his, the gap uh, made between us and him by, uh, uh, by our sin. He bridged it through giving his life. Well, there's a third question. Jesus came to reveal God and to reveal grace, and the third question is, how do I respond to Jesus? How do I respond to Jesus? You cannot remain neutral about Jesus. Do you know this? You cannot be neutral about Jesus. Any human being, you cannot be neutral about them. Um, there are three responses that I want to share with you. First of all, some people choose to reject Jesus. Verse 11 says, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. There are some people who refused Jesus. His own people refused Him. Not all of them, but some of them, especially the religious people among them, they refused Jesus. His own people rejected Him. And there are a lot of people that keep Jesus at an arm's length. But you see, Jesus is not willing to be at an arm's length to us. Really, in the Bible terms, Jesus is like a bridegroom who has offered to us a relationship like marriage, and it's up to us as to whether we will respond. You know, um, I don't know why anybody would ever ask his wife to marry him in the midst of thousands of people at a ball game. Maybe some of you have seen that. I don't know why anybody would do that. But wouldn't it be awful if a girl said no in the midst of all those people, there's only one appropriate response. It's the response of yes, and that involves a commitment of a whole life. But some are not willing to do that. They reject Jesus. The second response, there are those who receive Jesus. John 1:12. but as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God, sons of God. Yes, to those who believe on His name. Here we see the first evidence of what is a very important word in John. It's the word believe. We think of the word believe and we think of mental facts, like I believe the Cardinals are a good football team or whatever, or I believe that Abraham Lincoln lived, mental facts. But Gospel of John does not speak about belief simply as holding facts as true in my mind. He talks about believing into, just as every one of you believes in the chair you're on right now. You believe in it, and I know you believe in it because you sat in it. You entrusted yourself to it. To believe in Jesus means to entrust yourself to Him or to say yes to His marriage proposal, if you will. I can receive Jesus. And then there's a third response that we don't have time to talk about, but we see it later in this book, and that is this one. I can investigate Jesus. I can investigate uh, Jesus. Later in this book, we see some early followers of Jesus who, because they hear John the Baptist speak about him, they're already followers of John the Baptist. They hear him talk about him, and they begin to look at him. They, they want to they say, Master, where are you staying? And Jesus says to them, come and see. And Jesus gives us that invitation too. Sometimes we just need to take a look and explore and investigate Jesus. Well, when I read out of this little book, a lot of memories come into my mind, a memory of my grandparents, my grandmother in particular, who lived to be 98, almost 99 years old, and 
who actually has, my daughter has her as her middle name. Her name was Ruth, a deeply devout woman. Um, but what makes this really poignant to me when I read this story about Jesus is because Jesus is not simply a memory of when I was six. He's not simply a story about someone that I appreciate. Jesus is a person to whom I've committed my life. Ultimately, that's what each of us has to do. And John wants us to know in this book that that's why he's writing it. He wants us to believe into Jesus, to trust into Jesus. He believes that that will change our lives and give us full life. Let's have prayer as we close. Father, thank you so much for this little book and for all that it means to us. I pray that you'd help us to be responsive to this Jesus who gave his life for us, especially as we think of it represented in the bread and the cup, representing his body and blood, which we receive by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.